This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Boy, are you in for a treat this week. What's up, folks? Episode 172 of the Clay Young Show is live on your podcast device. Well, not necessarily live, but it's happening now because you're hearing me. And we've got two shows this week. Episode 172, the one you're listening to right now, will feature an exclusive conversation with Walter Monsoor. Now, if you are not from the Baton Rouge area, if you're listening anywhere else around the country or around the world, Walter Monsoor is probably one of the 50 most fascinating Baton Rougeans uh, to have been here in maybe the last 40 years. True story. He has served under two mayors, one of which was the first African-American mayor in the history of this city. He ran the Redevelopment Authority and has also been involved in infrastructural changes in Baton Rouge that have made this city so much different and, in my opinion, in many ways, so much better. He is a walking history book as it relates to Baton Rouge and a strong, strong personality. Dear God, Walter is clearly one of these people that if you understand him, you like him. If you don't understand him, he either terrifies you or you hate his guts. <laughs> and so uh, I, I was looking for, we, we were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago and we talked about him doing this. He doesn't do this a whole lot. And so uh, as I record this open, we've already done the interview and I think you will be very intrigued by what you hear. So we talk about his early years. You know, Walter is actually from Shreveport, Louisiana, and got his law degree from LSU. And there are a couple of things he did in his career that many of you may not have known you're going to learn about in this show. We will talk about his time working under Mayor Pat Screen. And that was a very different Baton Rouge, obviously, but in so many ways a very different Baton Rouge. We'll talk about his time working under Kip Holden, working with Kip Holden. Many people saw him as the quote-unquote co-mayor of Baton Rouge. Some people just flat out thought he was the guy really doing the job. And we will talk about that uh, on his watch, months into having the job, only a few months into having the, jo- having the job, a police officer was killed. And we had Hurricane Katrina. And... He ends up coming back to help Mayor Holden in 2008. Katrina was in 05, 2008, when Gustav happens. So, I mean, there's, there's just layers and layers and layers of things that we're going to talk about. But Walter Monsoor is our guest on episode 172. Episode 173 will feature a conversation with Matt Moscona, who is the host of After Further Review on ESPN, both in Baton Rouge and in New Orleans. We're going to talk about the NFL season kicking off in less than two weeks and the college football season, as we record this show right now, kicking off this coming weekend. We'll talk about LSU and Southern and the Saints and the NFL as a whole and some of the things going on in sports. This week, Odell Beckham Jr., a former product of LSU. He was a wide receiver at LSU, now famously a wide receiver in New York for the Giants, signed a huge deal. I think it's something like $95 million with $65 million of that guaranteed. Congratulations, young fella. That is, that is securing the bag, as they say. 
So we'll talk with Matt about that later this week. And after our conversation with Walter, I've got some thoughts on this thing, this incident, this shooting that took place in Jacksonville at this Madden, EA Sports Madden competition. And it's, it's one person's opinion about the way we dialogue some of this stuff. But we'll get into that after our conversation with Walter Monsoor. And that is next. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Clay Young here with John Conroy, the founder of Pestop, your do-it-yourself pest control solution. John, if people want to know how to kill mosquitoes or termites or spiders or fire ants, they can get the product directly from you. But it's important for them to understand how to use the products they buy. That's exactly right, Clay. We'll spend as long as it takes. For example, bed bugs, mm-hmm. we'll spend at least 30 minutes with the customer, right. helping them understand you know, how to apply it, what precautions to use, when to apply it, right. how to mix it. And that's real important because the strength that you apply it in is absolutely Absolutely. critical as to how effective it's going to be. There is no substitute for having that information and using these products the right way because I do it, folks, and I know that they can help you out. So here in the Baton Rouge area, people are buying it. Where can we find your store? Well, our Baton Rouge store is located at 806 O'Neill Lane. That's about a block south of Old Hammond Highway. Or if you have questions, just give us a call at 273-4788. Back with Walter Monsoor. Many of you know Walter as the longtime chief administrative officer under Kip Holden. He also worked under Mayor Pat Screen. And as you know, man, a lot of people considered you the co-mayor of Baton Rouge in your time there with Kip through the first, I guess, term and a half of him being in office. When you look back on that, do you think of that as a compliment or a backhanded insult? No, I certainly think of it as a compliment rather than a backhanded insult. But I'm quick to say then and and now that uh, I was able to do what I was able to do with either the permission or consent of the mayor. Um, he uh, allowed me to um, to bring him anything and everything, and mm-hmm. he uh, readily accepted uh, the vast, vast majority of what uh, I suggested or recommended that he do to further his agenda. Most people don't know this, you know, obviously in the era where you you and Kip partnered and worked together in the city, it was kind of in the era of the new media. There was so much more media going on. And when you came into office, there was a lot happening. However, going all the way back, you're from North Louisiana, Shreveport, right? Correct. And got a law degree from LSU. Correct. And you've you've practiced law in and, and, you know, in between working with mayors and and governmental entities as you've helped them over the years. So describe the path through LSU, LSU law and not going solely into practice and staying there, but having it drive you to politics. How'd that happen? Well, I 
think in the seventh grade I decided I was going to be a lawyer when we had to write a paper on what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I don't really know how I picked that because I never really had a love of the law, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it did not take me long to come to the realization that my best talents were not in the study and the practice of law. Mm -hmm. But the, the law degree has served me well. Uh, I only practiced for 10 years, but the discipline that you learn in how to identify a problem and solve a problem as you go through law school has boded me well through all of my ventures, and I've had several of them. Mm -hmm. I've dedicated a lot of my life to public service. Uh, I was an assistant uh, uh, district attorney, executive assistant district attorney for six years, and parish attorney for two years. Um, and then CAO under two different mayors for right. a total of about six years. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've, I've crossed um, all the lines virtually of, mm -hmm. of how government works together, how all three bodies of every government that we have in the United States works together, and I understand it. And there's... Um, there is a need to understand how the public sector works right. versus the private sector. And right. anyone who says that, oh, well, you can just take your knowledge from the private sector and put it into the public sector is wrong. That's naive. Uh, no. Your, your, board, your, board, your board of directors is either the, the council or the legislature yeah. or the Congress, and, and your stockholders are every voter in the parish That's right. uh, or city or yeah. state yeah. Or, or, or country. So you have a different constituency that you have to answer to. And it's not about equity. It's mm -hmm. about service. You know, you have to deliver services, uh, not equity. When you early on, you said you were you worked in a DA's office where? Here in Baton here, Rouge. Here. Everything in Baton Rouge. Everything in Baton Rouge. And the next job after that, the next big job after that was working under Mayor, Mayor Screen. Actually as parish attorney. Uh, parish I attorney. served okay. six years as the executive assistant uh, DA, and then the parish council picked me to become the third parish attorney uh, in ever in the parish. Mm -hmm. um, and that was in 1979. Okay. Uh, then um, I was with Screen for a little over a year from 85 into 86, and then went back into the private sector and came back out uh, to join Kip in his first term in 2005. When you look back on, skipping right ahead to your time with Mayor Screen, when you look back at that period and Baton Rouge history, you know, obviously the stories of, of of Mayor Screen are famous among people who, who know what politics was like back then. And you being able to keep the train on the tracks and 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 also try to move Baton Rouge forward, quote unquote, you know, what was that like? What are some of the stories you can tell us about that time? Well, Pat and I were uh, were best of friends. Mm -hmm. He he um, he and his wife Kathy are godparents. Unfortunately, Pat has passed away yeah. now mm -hmm. for several years. Mm -hmm. But to uh, our twins, and so we were uh, we competed against each other in high school. Uh, we were the same class. He went to Jesuit in New Orleans. I was at C. E. Bird in in Shreveport, mm -hmm. and we uh he was a, a three sport letterman i was a two so ironically we met in the quarterfinals of the state championship in all three sports that year um 
and um, and he beat us uh, in all three sports. And I say he because he was he was a, a unanimous All American high school player, just a tremendous athlete and very intelligent. So we we gendered a good relationship from high school into college, and then into law school, and then into the practice of law. Mm-hmm. Pat was a very dynamic person and I think could have easily risen above um, the position of mayor. Uh, unfortunately, he had some demons that he just right. not, could not overcome. But he was a mayor that, that, uh, that did not have any problems in stepping out of the box at a very early age. In fact, as a good example, um, we saw uh, the time that I was with him as CAO we saw the coming of the sewer problem mm-hmm. in Baton Rouge, and we could have we could have solved it in 1985 for about 265 million dollars, <laughs> and could not get the council to go along with us on that. And then fast forward today, it's about a 1.8 billion dollar fix. Right. You know the similarities between, and I don't want to move too far ahead to Kip, but you you developed an ability to be able to get. You almost were like a. A whip in the capacity of a house whip, say in Congress, that not only were you the you rode herd over the mayor's agenda, uh, you have you have an ability to build consensus. I mean, you're still doing it to this day in one capacity or another. Where did that come from? People, people. Uh, I have a reputation, as you well know, of being a pretty hard person. Um, no, but. Uh, I, as you said, I couldn't get things done mm-hmm. without consensus. So I am a consensus builder. I, my personality is this, Clay. I, I want to reach an accommodation. I want to reach a common ground. I, I believe in the middle. I don't believe in the extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if we're going to fight, we're going to fight. Yeah. And that's where I get that hard personality reputation. So all of my work as uh, in government has been to try to reach a consensus. Certainly, I have principles and I have uh, ethics that I'm I'm going to be bound by. Mm-hmm. But I understand that there's got to be a give and a take. Yeah. You know, when when half the parish is a certain color and a half the parish is another color and yeah. half the parish is one party and the other half the parish is another party, common sense will tell you. You've got to reach a consensus. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, I have, uh, when I was CAO, before I put any item on the agenda uh, for the mayor, mm-hmm. I would always have a personal and private conversation with every council member to get their input and to get their buy-in. And in some respects, they couldn't agree uh, to support that. But I always got a majority. And uh, as long as I could achieve a majority, then I knew that I was doing the best thing for the parish. How'd you strike the perfect balance between being forceful and being strategic? I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, when you're trying to carry forward an agenda, sometimes you're going to get pushback for whatever reason, and you have to hold your ground. But you also need to be strategic enough to realize that losing this one now can't cost me the next one in the future. Yeah, so, well, uh, my wife taught me a lesson uh, when our we have four boys that are four years apart. <laughs> so, Jeez. Uh, and she is a fabulous 
um, soulmate, and but an oh no, she's getting into heaven. Yeah, she's got a <laughs> she, she's got a first class nonstop. Trip. There's no doubt. She told me early on that we couldn't say no all the time; that we had to measure our no's. And mm-hmm. to that extent, I carried that over into hmm. my my discussions and uh, in trying to reach a consensus. Uh, I couldn't demand a hundred percent. There's just that's not human nature. I, I've had the innate ability to be able to to know when a person is sincerely objecting to something on rational, uh, reasonable grounds, mm-hmm. even though I disagree, and when they're trying to make a, a grandstand. Huh. So if it was, in my opinion, um, a reasonable, rational objection, I could live with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, can, I can understand you telling me no. What I can't understand you doing is saying yes and then voting no. So my agreement with all the council members was that whatever we discuss here in my office is what I expect to hear on the council floor. If there's something that varies from that, then we've got a problem. Then you're grandstanding, and that's not right. That's not the spirit of our relationship. But I patterned what we did uh, in terms that, as Pat Culbertson said, who uh, represented the – the Country Club of Louisiana mm-hmm, area, mm-hmm. The, the area the Chandler Loop now represents. Um, when asked how could a white Republican support an African-American Democrat, he said because they keep putting things out there that are good things to do. Right. So I would look for that. Mm-hmm. I would look for. I would try to make everything that we did uh, one that would appeal to a majority of the people mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the parish and not – on a district-wide basis or not on an ethnic uh, uh, basis, but one that was best for the entire parish. And that's what the mayor is supposed to do. You've got single-member districts. The mayor is the only one that's elected by the entire parish, so he or she has got to have the total parish in, in, their, in their headlights and in their rearview mirror. We talk more about race in 2018, in my opinion, than we did in the early days of the Holden administration. Because we're more racially divided yeah. today than we've ever been. That's what I was going to ask about. So why do you think that is? Well, look at the country. Uh, you yeah. know, I think that um, as the minority uh, has slowly become, in some instance, the majority, mm-hmm. and for instance, in East Baton Rouge Parish. That's right. Actually, uh, the whites are the minority mm-hmm. at this point in time, both on a parish-wide basis and on a city basis. Um, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. No. And um, it's like any kind of power change or a power shift. And unfortunately, there has not been, in my opinion, and I've stated this openly many, many, many times, there has not been the progress that everybody had thought would occur from the 65 Civil Rights um, Statute. African Americans and minorities have certainly benefited greatly by that act, and they have benefited by accommodations, public accommodations, by... Uh, HR policies uh, by a number of things, but socially not so. And that's what's bubbling up today is we see a social division. We don't see a professional division, Mm -hmm. but we see white flight. Um, You've got, and we've got, unfortunately, gerrymandered 
districts. And, and when you have single member districts, whether it's city council or whether it's the state the legislature or Congress, the, the, the unintended consequence of creating a majority African-American district to secure the election of an African-American is that you've created a majority white conservative district, which is inevitably going to elect a white conservative uh, uh, official mm -hmm. who are at odds. And they don't have to answer to, uh, to a, a, a a racially equal district. So if my district is 75% black, then I'm going to be beholding to 75% of the black uh, desires mm -hmm. and, and agenda and vice versa. And that's, in my opinion, why we are more racially divided today. I don't know that we language what and what real expectations are in government in the way that we should. When you talk about, say, North Baton Rouge, South Baton Rouge, some of the differences, there are some, there are many similarities in what all people want across the parish. But when I, when I hear people say we want progress, we want change, we want, I always wonder, well, what specifically does that mean? And what I mean what specifically does that mean is if you get elected based upon a, a a messaging platform of, of progress and change, what does that mean you're going to do? Because like you said, you, ha you have to be able to go and build consensus to make something real. You were there when, when Kip Holden was there, and you know, we, we saw Katrina, Rita, Wilma, Gustav, and everything that happened from those hurricanes. And the city saw growth in ways that we had never seen before with roads and the, the explosion of what's happened right down here at Blue Bonnet and then some things downtown and in the middle of the city. But the northern part of the parish didn't see as much growth. And the question is why? I, the northern part of the city is the original Baton Rouge, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, it... It was based primarily on a lot of big box businesses, right. um, whether it was uh, Borden's Milk or Wholesome Bread, mm -hmm. that have gone by the wayside, and with them went jobs, uh, and with the jobs went uh, people moving mm -hmm. to some other location in the parish or right. another parish. That's the... the the 30 foot level explanation um, again uh, there it used to be a mixed racial um, community absolutely there were a lot of of, of white people mm -hmm. who lived north of Florida Boulevard mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm really telling my age but when I graduated from school high school in Shreveport mm -hmm. There were three high schools. There was Bird, Fair Park, and St. John's, which mm -hmm. was the Catholic school. And here it was Baton Rouge High, Estruma, and Catholic High. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Estruma had everybody north of Florida, whether they were white or black. At that time, actually, it was we weren't integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, but to show you that, Estruma was, in fact, um, that well, north of Florida had that many white Baton Rougeans living in North Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. Most of them were uh, blue-collar plant workers, 
And um, as they started losing their jobs for whatever reasons, as the, as the economy changed, then they left North Baton Rouge and moved where they could find or be closer to their jobs. Understand, too, you didn't have the interstate then. Right. Uh, travel wasn't as easy, even though we're in a snarl today mm-hmm. and hopefully you're going to get out of it with this tax uh, uh, road tax proposition. But it wasn't as easy uh, to get from North Baton Rouge to South Baton Rouge then as it, as it is now. Back then, you didn't. You have Jefferson Place Bocage. That was a cow pasture. Right. Cartana Mall was a, was a, uh, a plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, Tara subdivision was a plantation. Mm-hmm. Woman's Hospital was a plantation. That was part of of uh, the. Uh, Cartana Plantation, actually, that blended into the Cedar Grove Plantation. I mean, uh, uh, it wasn't Cedar Grove. It was, I can't think of the, of the name that eventually, but that, that went all the way to Pike Burden across what is now the interstate. Right. And so it, people moved, and, and there, was, there was more of a community then in terms of you went to school where you lived. You worked where you lived. You went to church where you lived. Mm-hmm. So it was it was more communal at that time than it is now. But but what about it? Then going back to when you and and Kip did all of this development, like you said, that's where the the crux of the population was. Maybe more diversity or even less diversity, but going the other way years ago. And and all these years later, people don't see as much development there. People don't see as much investment there. Yeah, because there isn't the critical mass. There isn't. There isn't. Uh, there aren't enough people with um, with the amount of disposable income to support mm-hmm. the desires of the people that are there. Any business is going to come in. They're going to pinpoint where they want to be, and they're going oh, yeah. to draw a circle yeah. around that. And I don't. It depends on their marketing area. But if their marketing area is a five mile radius, they're going to see what the demographics are in that five mile radius, um, how many people are there, what's their disposable income, and if they can't make their business go, they can't make their business go. A big, big desire of North Baton Rouge is a good, wholesome, healthy food store, grocery store. It's it's a food desert as we know it in today's terms. We tried like hell to get a good, healthy food store. Did you? With incentives, absolutely. But at the end of the day, even with the incentives, we could not incentivize it enough to get um, what we will, what we wanted to put up there. Why? Because there just wasn't enough disposable income. And I, I know that businesses, well, I did some work with West Feliciana a few years ago when they were, the people there at the time were debating on whether or not they wanted Walmart. And this is before Walmart built the super center across the Mississippi and New Roads. Uh, at, this is just as the Audubon Bridge was was being completed. And they have this phenomenal metric that they use that other stores follow. They just wait on Walmart to build and then build around Walmart, which is why you see some of the same stores. And you're right. They figure if their core customer base, African-Americans, if, if whether upper middle class, middle class, or poor, if they have transportation to get to us and we can still draw from these other areas, then we don't have to be over there. And I've often looked at North Baton Rouge. We've got the airport up there. I think Matt McKay just put a facility up there. 
Uh, we've got Coca-Cola is up there, I believe. Right. Uh, you've got Southern University, and there's not much around it. And I think doing it overnight is implausible to me saying you want to you because there's so many cultural and then economic issues. But what does it take to say start on the path? You got to get to step one before you can get to 10. If you were just and it's just us talking here. But if you were saying what step one ought to be, what would you say? I think you have to look not in districts, but in uh, the broader sense. North Baton Rouge includes um, at least three, if not four, councilmanic districts, parts mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to uh, trying with deference to, to do something in each councilmanic district, I think there should be one spot one catalytic project Mm -hmm. that becomes the hub of the wheel and hopefully the spokes come out from that likely tech or blue collar well would be my suggestion something that has the ability to attract other businesses to come there and follow the Mm -hmm. walmart model you know which by the way was started by McDonald's. Right, that's exactly right. Because Burger King, if, you, if you've if you ever wondered, folks, why there's a Burger King <laughs> across the street from every McDonald's, Burger King figured out that okay, wait on McDonald's. McDonald's is the top dog. <laughs> that's right. We're going to get rid of our marketing and we're going to get rid of our real estate department. Right. And wherever they go, for whatever the cost is, we're going to buy across the street. They've already done the research. Sure. And and so I So they may have paid a premium price for the for the real estate, right. but they have saved money in the long run cuz they hadn't had to pay the marketing and the, and the real estate That's uh, right. uh, uh, division costs. But do you how many of these conversations that that's not, not a real question. Of these conversations that you had when you were there most recently in the mayor's office. What did you find the the tone to be? at the time and what was the biggest roadblock to gaining some level of consensus to get started the tone when when kip came into office there was there was a a great deal of optimism in the black community that something would be done in north baton rouge Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason and i gotta tell you i don't know because it was we never had that specific conversation, but that was wow. just, that was just not his attention. Okay, so you never had the specific con- and and granted, I get it. If you're looking at a city as a whole, because as a whole, there are two realities. You talked about it. You can look at each council district, but if you're looking at the entire map, you're thinking about how do you get the tide to rise so you can lift as many boats as possible. Right. Makes complete sense. But with so much criticism of him going on in an area where the mayor still to this day lives it's interesting that it never came up and i'm going to move on to something else because i think that people emotionalize some things without having knowledge about what happens behind the scenes yeah and we've been friends a long time and i know that not everything that you were doing was always public and then sometimes public descriptions of what was going on wasn't necessarily the truth but it didn't profit you to go out and correct it but on this specific issue, that administration has taken a bashing for years that he just didn't give a crap about North Baton Rouge. Yeah, I think the uh, th- and understand. I was there for the first term only. Yeah, and I, I think my reflection is this: is that while we never discussed it mm-hmm. in these terms, I think that he 
felt some inhibition because he was the first African-American mayor. And I believe that his reach was important to him to be a mayor for everybody. Interesting. My guess is, is that he felt like if he had focused his attention to the black community, he would be pigeonholed. He would be looked at as an African-American mayor as opposed to a mayor. That's sad. Well, I, well, and look, that's <laughs> no, 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 no. I know that that's not what you're saying. No, and and there is some truth that's in that. My, that's yeah. my reflection. Yeah, there is now, some, but it's that sad. doesn't that doesn't apply to second and third terms. Well, no, I mean obviously and he was there for twelve years. Sure, and you weren't there the no. the second and the third term. But I just he set two records. First, in his first term, for having been the first African American elected. Correct. In his second term, the only mayor president in the history of baton rouge to ever win every precinct in the parish yeah yeah he carried yeah every precinct in the parish on re-election no doubt in his second term but see think about what you just said in context to the criticism that while he was criticized for things that he didn't do in specific parts of town, North Baton Rouge, South Baton Rouge saw that there was things weren't moving fast enough. North Baton Rouge said things are not moving at all. He still was able to go in and people said, well, it's better than anything else. And it's as good as we've, we've had it. So we're going to vote for him and have him there. And now as a, as a point of, of history, you left basically after the first term, but weren't you in some ways involved in his initial reelection? Did you go back to help him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, in, in his second term, I still remained as a trusted advisor, mm-hmm. even though I was not in the government. I was head of the Redevelopment Authority right. at the time. Why'd you leave? To become the head of the Redevelopment Authority. So it was specifically Authority. because of that. Right. Okay. And um, and headed up his reelection effort. Yeah. Um, Afterwards, not as a campaign manager, but as a chief fundraiser and mm-hmm. strategist. Uh, and so when you look back at, well, let's talk about some specific things that happened when you were there. And Jeff LaDuff and I have talked about this a whole lot. And Terry Malasa, the shooting with the officers, right. three officers were shot. One of them killed Terry Malasa. And I remember it was it was it was a day during the middle of the week. I want to say it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, kind of right in the middle of the day in Baton Rouge. And this happened. That particular tragedy, when you when your office found out the mayor's office, you and Kip, when y'all find right. found out, just kind of talk us through that as much as you can remember. It was, a, it, it was an extremely sad day. It was it was the first time that we had had an officer killed on our watch. And the first since Vicky Wax a few yeah, a few years earlier. Actually, um, it's a devastating blow. You know the the the, um, the police are very very close knit group, mm-hmm. and Kip was um, he was he was a favorite of the police in the election. Yeah. They were they were anti Bobby Simpson yep. and for Kip Holden. I had had a great relationship with the police over the years by virtue of having been uh, an executive assistant district attorney and then parish attorney. So I personally had a good relationship. So we we enjoyed a good relationship with the police and therefore Mm -hmm. a close relationship with the police. And 
it probably affected the two of us more than than most because of that personal relationship that each of us had yeah that you know kip had been um he he had been a uh spokesperson yeah uh, at one time yeah. for the city police so each of us had our own individual relationships with the baton rouge police department and to that extent we were very close with them LaDuff and I uh, were very close as chief administrative officer and chief of police. We, we met daily. Mm-hmm. Um, the three departments that I kept under my direct control were, f- were police, fire, and Department of Public Works. Well, four, including emergency operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, my assistant um, uh, chief administrative officers, uh, I parsed out the rest of the departments to them. And so all of those department heads reported directly to me and not through an assistant chief administrative officer. Uh, accordingly, I was very close, knew a lot of the officers personally. Um, you know, that we, we had, uh, when Kip came in, we reinstituted a security uh, force for the mayor, mm-hmm. which McHugh had not had. Right. Simpson didn't have it either. Simpson didn't have it either. Um, and they drove their own cars. Uh, but it, it was my insistence. Uh, Kip gets a bad or got a bad rap initially. Uh, for bringing back a security detail and actually it was it was me who said you need a security detail i don't want you out there uh, driving and someone setting you up look this was the first african-american <laughs> right, mayor right and um especially not after midnight yeah so well at any rate um <laughs> let's go back to the Malonsaw story yeah. there Malonsaw uh, Terry and and ultimately his family it was it was it was a tough day yeah uh, it was a tough several months after that uh and in many ways it it brought us all closer together yeah but um you know we just didn't fathom that something like that could happen with body armor and mm-hmm. in that fashion <laughs> little it, did so we it, know it, right it, yeah but it, yeah. you know it was just it was a freak yeah. the way that the the bullet uh you know hit him and and destroyed him um that's the most i can i can tell you was that there was there was no behind the scenes to that other than uh, a lot of sadness and a lot of camaraderie yeah uh, in in the city parish government did bring the town together because it, I mean it was a weird day Jeff and I talked about it in that same day the black rhino Clifford Etienne was arrested for attempting a carjacking on somebody <laughs> it was just an odd odd day and you fast forward ahead to Katrina in August of 2005 and I, you know I've told this story before it was a Saturday the storm made landfall on Monday and Saturday, I'm out working in one of my gardens and, you know, redoing it. It's that time of the year, getting ready for the fall. And Bugs, Ed Bugs, who's no longer with us, calls me. And, and you know Bugs. Yeah. Clay, what are you doing? It's like, it's Saturday, Bugs. <laughs> What's up? He said, are you watching television? No, are you watching the news? I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm outside. He says, well, go in. And I walk in, go into the living room, get around, turn on the news and actually it was at the time it was still on one of the news channels and I see Thad Allen, Ray Nagin, Kathleen Blanco on television and I'm asking him what's going on. He said, oh, this is the big one. It's real. And so I you know, kind of stood there and watched it for a little while. 
And obviously they were saying landfall. Now, the cynic in all of us at this time, and people know this about us down here in Louisiana, is that we have been hearing about the big one for so long that we, it was like the boy who cried wolf. But everybody's face on television that day was like, yeah, this is too close not to be the big deal. So Monday, the storm makes landfall. But by uh, Sunday, I'm doing radio at the time and I can see all the cars coming into Baton Rouge, getting the hell out of New Orleans. When were you and, and the office made aware that this was going to be a state of emergency and that it was probably going to have an impact up I-10 in Baton Rouge, too? On Friday. Okay. And uh, we, uh, our first all-hands-on-deck meeting at the MOSEP was on Friday. Um, we met for several hours, uh, came back on Saturday uh, and met for several more hours. Then I had a news conference. Actually, Kip was out of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, got in touch with him on Friday and told him he needed to get back in town right away. And then Sunday, we we uh, mobilized and went into operation even before the storm hit. And, of course, uh, would have been fine but for uh, the... the uh, breaking of the levees that, mm-hmm. that eventually evacuated all of New Orleans. Right, right. In fact, Katrina, in and of itself, as a storm in Baton Rouge, I think the longest people were without power was maybe 72 hours. Yeah, I think it was about three days or so. Yeah. Gustav was substantially Well, longer. Gustav, yeah, Gustav yeah. Uh, was... Uh, I was, was seven days without that, power. That 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 was the that was the toughest storm that Baton Rouge has ever has had. ever suffered. Going, our, our excuse me, our suffering from Katrina, if you want to call it that, was the influx of two hundred fifty thousand people. And there it is. That's that's what I want to get to. So we get through that Monday by Monday evening. Most of the damage done by the storm had kind of ended outside of a few winds that were still here as it moved on, and we, all these people were in in Baton Rouge, people had evacuated out of New Orleans. So when you put that plan together, because you you didn't initially have people in the River Center. No. Where where were folks who moved up or came up from New Orleans who, before you opened the River Center? Well, our typical plan um, was that we, we would use, um, there were a variety and still are today, a variety of charitable organizations that will house displaced people Mm -hmm. but that had always been for displaced in baton rouge right so they were relatively small in terms of the number that they could handle yep um when we got to thousands of people being evacuated from orleans and jefferson parish and literally huey helicopters were not even landing at at the airport they mm-hmm. were hovering off of the ground two or three feet and loading eight unloading 80 or 90 people um so we had to start we had to open up the river center and we we ended up putting like fifteen thousand people in the river yeah. center and by health standards we had to have a police officer for every 50 people i mean it was it was a backbreaker in many, many ways. Um, obviously, we had to divert a lot of buses and mm-hmm. uh, and airplanes and Hueys to the west. 
uh, to Lafayette, Lake Charles, uh, Houston. Mm -hmm. Some people on their own decided, obviously, to evacuate to Atlanta. But all of the ground traffic was was directed uh, west when we filled up, and we filled up pretty quickly. There's there is a backstory about the mayor not wanting to open the river center, and it was a little bit of what you alluded to that it because it wasn't Baton Rouge folks that it was folks coming up from New Orleans and there was all kinds of drama going on behind the scenes about that. What about that? Can you tell us about now? Oh, that was, uh, governor Blanca was, there's one particular story that I'm going to have to have to have the person we were talking about tell one day, but go ahead, go ahead. Governor Blanco was the, um, was the governor. Yeah. And, uh, Andy Copland, was Andy Copland, her chief of staff, yep. uh, and and who was my direct contact is yeah. I serve the the CEO basically serves in Baton Rouge as not only the commissioner of administration but also the chief of staff. Mm-hmm. So uh, we filled up more than capacity. Capacity really should have been somewhere in the ten thousand range. Uh, we relented and went to five, uh, five more, and then they wanted to uh, to put even more. And um, buses were still being directed by the governor, by the state, to the river center, and um, we had the police stop them and would not let them unload. Um, and we had others further out on the interstate redirecting and saying you can't go to the river center and well mm-hmm. i get a call about 2 30 in the morning from andy saying that um, i had to open the river center up for more and i said no I'm, I'm not doing that we can't we're well over capacity we don't have the manpower we don't have the resources uh to adequately supervise and police mm-hmm. literally uh those those people well, yeah, you're going to do it. This is a state of emergency, and the governor is going to do it. And I said, well, the governor is going to have to commandeer the river center. If she's prepared to do that, go ahead. But if you're asking me as chief administrative officer to do it or directing me, then I'm not going to do it. Well, then I'm going to call Kip Holder. And I said, well, here's his private number. <laughs> and when you call him, tell him that we've talked. And if he says okay to you, then maybe you can serve as his chief administrative officer as well. Well, you know I'm not really surprised. <laughs> that was the way that conversation went. Andy and Jeez. I are very good friends. I don't know how that happens. The first time you and I ever talked on the phone, we we were arguing, and now you know. Well, just, I mean, there again, it's it's um, I, it's a different meaning of stand your ground, but but uh, we had accommodated as much as we could accommodate, yeah, yeah. and um, our officers, our police officers. Uh, went from three eight-hour shifts to mm-hmm. two 12-hour shifts that really became 24-hour shifts. I yeah. mean, we had officers that were working around the clock. Yeah. And I wasn't concerned about the expense because I knew that we could we could recapture at least 90% mm-hmm. of everything we spent under a state of, uh, of emergency. But what I was worried about was their physical and mental condition of Mm -hmm. having to work those kind of stressful hours and long hours. I want to speed ahead a little bit because there are some things I want to talk about in recent history. And then I kind of want to talk a little bit about what's coming up 
in December with this transportation thing in as in as much as you can talk about it uh, in the next you know few minutes. The speeding ahead to Gustav in 2008, and that, as you said earlier, being the worst storm to uh, ever have you know, hit Baton Rouge. I mean, it was worse than on us than Katrina was. It was worse on us than Andrew was all the way back in 1992. And in that period, we had seen some of that before, but you referenced the power outage and the impact on the city, yet we avoided riots, as far as I know. Right. Uh, there was a curfew, but there was n- not a whole lot of blowback about there being a curfew. Right. So I'll just pull all that off. Well, we were prepared. You know, when Katrina hit, uh, and, and probably every storm is different, certainly these two were, but uh, there was no playbook for Katrina. Yeah. And uh, it was get in the huddle and draw in the dirt. Mm-hmm. You go long, you go short, mm-hmm. and I'll throw to whoever's open. Um, our after-action meetings... Uh, several months after Katrina when things were settled down enough where we could think reasonably and rationally, uh, we put together a playbook that ended up becoming very, very handy for Gustav. Mm -hmm. So we were pre-positioned in many instances for Gustav. That is, we had contracts that had been competitively procured in advance that we could pull the trigger on when those storms hit. And the, rap- the rapidness in which we were able to deal with uh, Gustav mm-hmm. um, came out of, of what we learned uh, in, in Katrina. And thank God, you know, I, I had four hurricanes in four years yeah. to deal with. And um, yeah. um, I am most pleased with Gustav because we we got 40,000 tons of debris off of the streets within a seven-day period. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's backbreaking. But we had pre-positioned those contractors uh, through two years before. Right. Two years before. Yeah. If you go ahead, speed ahead, and and because I want to do that. Well, first of all, getting out of it. You went to the redevelopment authority. You're not there. You and Kip are not, you know, this in the same place that you were. But when you look back on his time in service to the city in that office, how would you describe it? What would your reflection be? I think we did a lot of good. Mm-hmm. I think, ironically. We brought a lot of the white community together with the black community. Mm-hmm. Again, in, in the first term, term and a half, two terms, <clears throat> uh, there was there was a very cooperative effort between the city of Baton Rouge, state government, the Baton Rouge Area Foundation, the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, mm-hmm. and they stepped up both big time for the agenda that the mayor had, which did include North Baton Rouge, not to the extent that a lot of people would have liked, but be that as it may. Um, and unfortunately, it has, it, it's somewhere at the end of his second term, it started leveling out and then, then dropping off. Mm-hmm. Um, but there again, if you look back over the last seven years, eight years, and see where the country was then and where yeah. the country is today it it's it's it patterns that that whole movement 
Um, so I'm, I, I will always be proud of the four years that I spent as chief administrative officer and the things that we were able to accomplish. The rebuilding of downtown is one of the one of the things that I'm most proud of. I think that every city has to have a living room, and that's that's their their downtown area, regardless Fair. of whether you live in the suburbs or not. Mm-hmm. And those who live um, in the suburbs still need to understand that their city needs a heart. It needs it needs a living room, and that's where it is. And it's always going to be the downtown. So. New Orleans does, uh, Jefferson Parish does not exist but for New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And in large part, uh, Baker, Zachary, Central, um, even the dissidents in St. George do not exist but for Baton Rouge, the city of Baton Rouge. And uh, that's that's a hell of a dynamic, I believe. And we, we took it from zero hotel rooms yeah. to now over 1800 to 2000 uh, hotel rooms and still going so yeah. it's it, what happens if st george happens <laughs> let me rephrase what happens when st george happens um we go to a new form of government there will no mm-hmm. longer be a consolidate a need for a consolidated form of government right i uh, think you'd you'd have a change in the plan of government to right. go to probably a five or seven member city council and a five to seven member parish council which would look very similar to what exists as a metro council well demographically speaking if you're electing from these same areas and these areas go from being city council districts to parish council districts they're going to look the same the city council would become predominantly Mm african-american and the parish council council would uh, would be probably more in line with what you see of the actual Metro Council as we speak today. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a, you know, a, a, if it were a seven-member council, it's, it could go four or three either way mm-hmm. in the parish. Why'd you never run for mayor? <laughs> I'm, I'm a better czar than I am an elected official. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really am. I, I'm a... I, I couldn't. I couldn't do as mayor probably what I did as CAO. I was an implementer. I mean, I, I think I had a lot of original ideas, or at least copied ideas. I've mm-hmm. always said I've never had an original idea. I'm a good cut and paster. <laughs> uh, but I am. Uh, I'm probably a better implementer. Yeah. And um, I, I can. I can't build the train, but I can keep them running on time and on the rails. And um, as a mayor, I think you have to be more of a CEO and set the policy and have those people under you. Um, I, I, and those people under you are hard to find mm-hmm. that would that can be as passionate as you and be um, and do what you want them to do. 2016, that entire summer, from early July all the way through August, the incident with Alton Sterling, the assassination of the officers, and then the great flood of 2016. You look back, that period has changed Baton Rouge. Whether people wanted to admit it or not, mentally the town is 
a lot different. And whether it will level back to where it was or keep moving this in this direction, who knows? But when you look back at that year, what was the impact? What are your reflections? Where do we go? Well, you're talking about two uh, historically significant events in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. The Alton-Sterling situation rivals in terms of a racial event like the black Muslims were in 1970. And um, it took us a while, a long while, to overcome that. I hope we can overcome the Alton-Sterling event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flood um, certainly could end up being a good thing because it it's forcing the parish to do what it should have done a long time ago, um, and that is to address infrastructure problems. Mm-hmm. And I know that's being done uh, on a wholesale uh, part with the drainage, and hopefully it's going to be that way with the traffic too with this transportation. Uh, but I, I believe in basic services and basic services. I think people can be happy if their garbage is picked up on time and they're riding on, on streets and don't have to sit in a parking lot and they don't flood. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and, and no crime. I mean, that, that, that's what, that's what people are paying taxes for. And they, you know, they want the commode to flush and not back up. They don't want to be scared to walk down the street. They don't want to have to dodge potholes. Right. You know, they want the garbage picked up on time. It's not very difficult to satisfy people in terms of what they need and what they want. Well, you, uh, just one more question about that summer. And you talked earlier about how we, we are more racially divided and, than, than we have been. I think a lot of the dialogue and the, and the tone and tenor of the dialogue was born during that summer, the current dialogue that we see in Baton Rouge. Yes. Yeah. And in your opinion, is anyone or are there any groups working to correct that? Not to my knowledge. I think there's, there became a polarization that, that had been festering for a while. Yeah. I think born is a good way to put it because yeah. certainly there had been a pregnancy. Sure. And then there was a birth. Mm-hmm. And that birth... Uh, I don't know that the baby is growing, but it's still crying, and and uh, I don't see, I don't see a common ground yet. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't see a common ground yet. I see, I don't see even a platform for that, and and um, and that's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame because um, I do believe, sincerely believe, and have always felt in this way that. Um, no matter race, creed, or color, if you treat someone like you would want to be treated, then everything is going to be fine. The golden rule is uh, the older I get, the more I understand it, and it is, in fact, the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, I don't, unfortunately, see the platform to do that. And, and it's not one individual. It's not this mayor no, it's going to take everybody. Another mayor. Yeah. It's, not, it's not this governor versus right. another governor. Uh, it, it is it, it's it's about human beings and it's about uh, how you would like to be treated as a human being right you know god said we have to love each other he didn't say anything about liking like, each other right. well, so i don't have to run around with you <laughs> but if you're in trouble i need to try, i need to try to help you when you look at baton rouge it's been nearly 10 years since you left 
the mayor's office full time as CAO and nearly 14 years since you and Kip walked into that office together to begin the journey and, and move Baton Rouge. And look how much Baton Rouge has changed since then. What are you most proud of? I am most proud of the unity and the economic development that we brought to Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we also ran an efficient government. Now, you know, this mayor is having an efficiency study done, and I think rightfully so. Any organization, I don't care. You know, how many times did Shaw... Uh, reorganize themselves mm-hmm. on their way to a Fortune 500 company. Right. So anybody, and I mean by body, not any person, but anybody, any entity, entity. any organization, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, should should probably have a four or five year plan. In in public life, there's a four year window. That's mm-hmm. the electrical cycle. Right. And every four years, there ought to be a strategic session where yeah. you look back and say, okay, what can we do differently? Right. And and never get comfortable in what you have been doing and thinking that that's the only way to do it. It's death. Stagnation it is. is death. It is. So you may not change, but yeah. you need to revisit whether you need to change or not. Got this tax coming up in December. Why the hell should people support this thing, Walter? This is this is a tremendous program. Okay, it is uh, much better than Greenlight, which was a very uh, successful program. True. This is going to, if you look at the maps of the streets, you'll be able to see immediately how traffic can be alleviated. Mm-hmm. This does not deal with the interstate. It does not deal with the bridge. That's a federal and state problem. Right. And we don't have the capacity, nor do we have the, the ability mm-hmm. uh, to do that. But we can take care of ourselves, and we can try to alleviate the need for us as Baton Rougeans to get on the interstate unless we're going out of town. Right. And that is to take our arterials and make them more accessible and to speed up traffic. Mobility. This is all about mobility now, Clay. Mm-hmm. It's not about pavement. Uh, it's not about asphalt and concrete. It's about moving you from this office mm-hmm. on Blue Bonnet to your home. And I'm not going to tell people where you live. I appreciate that. But in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Now, if it, it, I think... It probably takes you, on average, to get to your office from your house maybe 12 minutes. Yeah. So I'm going to get you there after this program in nine minutes. And when you multiply that times two, times 300 and, or 250 days, then you're going to see the savings in both yeah. your mental yep. as well as your tush yeah. where you keep your pocketbook. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's real. And that's not me saying that. That is uh, the top economist for LSU who's putting his name and the LSU brand on it. Mm -hmm. It is the executive director of the Metropolitan Planning Organization, a nine-parish planning organization that had professional modeling done done of the time that it saved. And time is money. And time is, is, is less aggravation and less road rage and all of these things. So it, 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 there are nothing but pluses. And the cost is de minimis to what your savings will be in both what you spend on gas yeah. as well as how you make your money with your time. 
when people look at this, even those who get the historical precedent of green light, they look at this tax, but they look at it in conjunction with these already high sales tax sales taxes and then the uptick in property taxes that many had seen even before the flood. And they're saying, how much more can we handle? Because, I mean, that's what you're dealing with more than anything else. I don't know that I've heard anyone question the the accuracy or the intellect behind why you are doing where you are doing it. But people are saying we're just taxed out. Well, so what's I, your argument against people who say that? Is that you have no option. The, the, you have two options here. One option is to pay a half cent more for the next 25 to 30 years and get a much better trans, transportation infrastructure in place. Mm that saves you time and money, literally. Or you continue to have this infrastructure deteriorate. We can't fix Rome overnight. This problem is not a problem that just occurred in this last two years True. or the last administration. True. True. It's, it's never been fully addressed. Mm-hmm. And if there were an alternative, I would say let's go for it. But you can't take... The, the revenue stream that comes into East Baton Rouge Parish today and find $46 million, which is what it would take on an annual basis to finance this program. Wow. Yeah. Now, in comparison, the unrestricted amount of dollars that come into the city parish government as we sit here today, what's mm-hmm. called the general fund, is right. about three hundred and twenty million dollars right so you're going to be taking an eighth you're, you're looking to, to cut that budget by one eighth mm-hmm. or one seventh to fund this to fund this that can't happen you right. can't find 46 million right you can't go find 4.6 million and and therein lies the conundrum that we're in i don't want to be taxed any more than i want than i have to be but I don't want to dodge potholes anymore. I don't want to sit in traffic anymore. I don't want to, to, to look at uh, uh, the time that it takes for me to get to here to there. Mm-hmm. And then wonder if I'm going to be able to get there. What if there's an accident? You know, right. this, this plan also has a tremendous component of light synchronization, total light synchronization even to the extent that emergency vehicles will be able to change the signal uh, on the fly when they have an emergency that they have to attend so if they're normally looking at a red light and they're honking their horn like hell as they normally do to help people stop (laughs) they can change that in their unit as they drive they'll be able to change the direction of that light Wow. Uh, as will they will be able to at the automotive tra- uh, traffic management center yeah. on Harding Boulevard, yeah. which is the emergency operations center. That in and of itself is a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. You've got and part look part of of what is being proposed is not adding to but taking away. Taking away some traffic signals is going to speed up no doubt about the that. flow of traffic. Putting turning lanes in is going to speed up the Mm -hmm. flow of traffic. So we're not talking about, let's go build new streets. There are a lot of new streets in here. Don't get me wrong. Let's don't go widen streets. We're we're definitely widening, widening streets. 
But we are also making mobility the primary factor that all of this is being done. Mm. It is to get you from point A to point B in a faster, more efficient, and a safer manner. And this is going to be on the December ballot. And to my knowledge, there is only one of the school board races that will go to December. All the rest of them only have two people in them. Garrett Graves' race is in November, but he's only running against one person. Right. And then there treasurer's are... Treasurer's race. Uh, and the treasurer's race, that's right. Uh, Kyle Ardwan, and how many people are in that race against... Uh, Five with, or six. So, so there will probably be run, a runoff in the treasurer's race. Yeah. So you're, you, you are only going to have a couple, as we can think about it here, elections for positions, you know, local and then right. statewide. And then these, there is this initiative, and then there's the mental health thing that's on the Correct. ballot in December. So... How do you believe, and I, and I know that you're not privy to the inner workings of what's happening, you know, with, with the GOTV, but what, how would you say get the vote out for that? Because December is going to be tough. Well, it is. I think that, that uh, the, the group that is the group of business people who have decided to step up to the plate mm-hmm. and move this proposition along, uh, I understand have... Uh, they are planning a very robust campaign as if you were running for office mm-hmm. and you were going to be elected. So uh, their objective is to make sure that the facts get out and get out timely uh, to all the people in the parish. And because there's benefit to every sector of the parish, not just geographically, but demographically mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I, I'm confident that that can be done and should be done. It hasn't been done before since Greenlight Plan 1. And uh, I think people will readily see. There's a lot of outreach, um, but people will readily see that there is benefit in this and that the cost, uh, the individual cost, is going to be less than the individual rate of return. Man, the last time, and we weren't even in studio, you were on the phone. The last time we did any kind of interview together was about 10 years ago when Gustav happened Correct. and Matt Kennedy called me over to Jabo. And, you know, I, I was texting with you when I can catch you about what was going on. And because I knew you had a handle on it. And the most important thing for my position was always just let the people know what's going on. There's no need to, you know, as as an, as the on-air guy, don't you don't need to scare the hell out of them. They don't need hyperbole. They just need to know. Here's what's happening. Here's where you will and won't be able to go. Here's what we're doing. And you always had a handle on that. Said all that to say that this is fun. You got to come back before this tax and sit with me again. Well, I may do that. <laughs> you treated me much better than I thought you would. <laughs> Well, I came, no, no, I came no, in here with no, a gun no, on no, my head. Listen, listen, this was the setup. Yeah, <laughs> this was the setup. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Rodrigue, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get the Waiting Room podcast here on podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107.3 mobile app.
Executone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one. Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology while saving money? That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here, and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call, 225-295-3500. That's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here, and they're going to continue to give you great service. Walter is one of my favorite people. You want to know what he thinks? Ask him. He'll shoot you straight for sure. Thanks for being on the show, Walt. Coming up later this week, Matt Moscona is going to be on here to talk a little college and NFL kickoff. The college football season is about to start. The NFL football season is starting in less than two weeks, and Matt's going to be in here. He is the host of After Further Review syndicated in Baton Rouge on ESPN and in New Orleans. So looking forward to having Matt on later this week. I said after, at the end of the opening segment, before we went to break to talk with Walter, that I wanted to talk about this shooting that took place in Jacksonville. And I was watching this on Sunday. It was kind of a lazy Sunday. And getting some work done for Monday and just kind of started getting the push alerts and then uh, looked up and saw what was going on there. And what a crazy, crazy thing to think about. You know, if you were thinking about something that, say, one of your kids wanted to go and be a part of, let's say they are in the video games and they wanted to go to the Madden tournament at a local restaurant or gathering hall in your city, the last thing you think about there is somebody's going to walk in with a with a gun and start shooting people if they lose. It just, it never would have occurred, at least to me, never would have occurred to me. And then to see this happen, and this kid that we've learned had some mental health issues and was uh, was d- addicted to these games, and I've since watched videos of him being interviewed, and there's just nothing there, like nothing behind his eyes, just no personality. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, There are two things that pop right off at this. First thing is we really have to make certain that our kids have interpersonal skills and our young people and that we even as adults, because adults, it's not just kids. I mean, they're hell, they're men in their 40s who do these these game contests. But we can't lose the ability to relate to one another, to communicate with one another on a face-to-face basis, not just through text messages or having head, headphones on and, and competing on video games that way. The interpersonal skills go away. And it's like, it's just odd. These kids are walking around like zombies now with no ability to make eye contact, so many of them. And on one side, the kids who do have these skills stand out like a thumb on a toe. 
and the kids who don't just kind of go along with a trend. And and I really think we got to get out. It's nothing wrong with being outside and doing things outside, or at least every now and again, taking a break from the cell phones and the video games just to at least have face-to-face conversation. That's the first thing. The second thing is we every time something like this happens, we make it just about guns. And I'm here to tell you that we need to quit that. Yes, the conversation about gun violence should include guns, obviously, because guns are being used. But we never say let's ban cars when some idiot runs in, into a crowd with cars. And, and that's not even the argument that I'm making, just an, an wholesale defensive gun. Now, I'm a gun owner. OK, but my, my point is. We got to talk about the mental health aspect of this and people walking our streets who have undiagnosed mental health issues or whom have even been diagnosed and are not able to get the treatment because of some issue with insurance or some other foolishness that goes on with bureaucracy. But we got to talk about that because it's getting worse. And we're hearing after some of these shootings more and more about people who had issues and the signs were glaringly there, billboard sized signs that people ignored. And if you've seen this video that's out there, I need to tell you where it is. If the Internet's a place where you can find anything, something's good, something's bad. And one of the, the videos is a video of one of the young men or the young man who beat this kid moments before the shooting. You see a red dot on his chest just above his heart or around his heart. I mean, the mental health issue in this country is one that we don't do enough about, one that we don't, I don't think, take as seriously as we should. And it it is coming back to haunt us because there are ticking time bombs walking around us every day in grocery stores and offices, sitting in churches next to people. I mean, it is way out of control. And at what point do we quit politicizing these issues and make every freaking thing right and left and start talking common sense about what the hell is happening in our country? And this thing happened on Sunday and by Monday afternoon was out of the news cycle. That is how normalized this kind of behavior has become. Now, what the hell does that say about us? Just one person's opinion. But it's getting really frustrating to see that all of these serious issues that pop up in our society get trivialized or downgraded to political foolishness and pro wrestling like good guy bad guy rhetoric as opposed to talking about what symptoms or what uh, solutions can we come up with to solve these problems for real and not just appear to be doing something just so we can look busy as in the case of so many politicians again we're gonna wake up or we're just gonna Keep going with our head in the ground. That's the rant about that. Talk with you later this week with Matt Moscona from After Further Review. Thanks again to Walter Montour. Listen, keep sharing the word about the show. Keep sharing it on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR or on Facebook forward slash ClayYoung. And we appreciate y'all. Catch you on episode 173. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.